Welcome to B-Sides. I'm Pastor Brandon. Every message has a side B, and we will be looking at our first message in Isaiah, chapters 1 through 5, called Let's Talk. And we open the message as if you were at a dinner theater, and the opening chapters of Isaiah being a theater and we saw the characters come onto the stage. And I spent the first 20 to 30 minutes simply reading every verse of the first five chapters in dramatic fashion, as if you're watching it unfold on a stage. We don't know for sure if Isaiah was writing it as a play, but it seemed evident to me that it had at least the dramatic quality in it to be presented as such. And there is a flair of the dramatic in this already instilled. Chapter 1, all the commentators say, is a courtroom scene, and heaven and earth are indeed called as witnesses. Now, I got the idea. No, I did not come up with it on my own. I was asked, did you come up with that? No. I got the idea from Dr. Bill Creasy. I heard him teach the first five chapters of Isaiah precisely as I did, uh, making a dramatic reading of it. And so I borrowed what he did and and presented it. But so with that said, though, we did not get to talk about the five chapters very much. We basically focused on chapter 1, verse 18, when God invites us to reason together with him, or to argue, or to fight it out, or to dispute, or to simply talk. So there's a couple things in this episode that we'll just go back through and kind of elaborate. Um, so let's let's dig right in. I want to go back to uh, the intro that I taught about the poetry part. And just to elaborate on that a little bit, one of the things we need to be aware of when we read the Bible is what kind of genre is this book I'm reading? So for example, when you open Isaiah, it's not the same thing as opening up the Gospels or the same thing as opening up Paul's letters. Each of those are separate genres. Now, you don't have to be an expert to understand how to read that. You just need to be aware. So, in other words, when we open one of Paul's letters— say the book of Romans, we expect to hear an argument where he's usually addressing a problem and providing theological solutions. We gather a lot of our beliefs from what Paul says because there he's spelling a lot of it out in the context of addressing a problem. The Gospels, their narrative, you expect a series of events, you expect scenes, you expect dialogue, you're really being immersed and invited into a story. Isaiah is a prophet, and the prophets often spoke, or wrote at least, in poetry, which means you're not always going to get a narrative, and you're not always going to get doctrine. So now we must ask, so what do we do with poetry? This should not turn us off. I know that sometimes when people pick up poetry, they can become snobs and real literary geniuses and wax eloquently forever and ever on a single line of a poem and how you got to get the rhythm and see the iambic meter and all that stuff. Like, um, notice the harsh word versus the soft word. Like, first of all, we lose some of that because we're reading a translation, right? We're not reading the actual Hebrew in 
the actual Hebrew. We're reading English. So we don't need to approach it quite like that. And um, that's why we have teachers who point out the things that are important in the poetry when they matter, which I will do a little later in this episode. All we need to do is realize what poetry is for. And poetry is meant to take something that is nearly impossible to describe and, and to give us different language to feel it. Or sometimes what it does is it takes something that's very common, but looks at it from a very different angle we've never seen it from before. And so what Isaiah does with his poetry is he's inviting us to see the heart of God, the will of God, the soul of God in a way that we haven't before. Like you can't literally talk about the heart of God. You can't spell out in English words what precisely that is. You can start with words like, well, God is love. God wants to bring all people to himself. God is peace. He, but now notice this. He is like a shepherd. See, now we're getting more into poetry, right? Because we're using simile. And, and that's what the poetry of Isaiah wants to do is it wants to draw us into this relationship, into this, um, what's it like for humanity to be in relationship with the Holy One of Israel? And so poetry is the best way to get that across. So what this means is you shouldn't always read Isaiah to draw doctrine out. You should read it for feeling, for emotion. He's trying to tug us in from the heartstrings toward God. And let me read to you what one commentator says about um, this. This is Ben Witherington. He says, Poetry lets us hear the sound of the soul of God. Isn't that cool? So by reading Isaiah, we get to, if we're opening our ears, we get to hear the sound of the soul of God. He continues, the idea is to listen intently, have a heart to heart talk. And so here's the purpose, further restart or heal a relationship. When listening this way, one is meant to ask oneself hard questions, not merely ask God for information. I really like that. I also don't, (laughs) because that's challenging. Isn't it so much easier to open Isaiah and just to ask God for information? But instead, if we're listening and truly listening to what he's saying and letting the poetry do its effect and wash over us, it's actually trying to invite us into a heart-to-heart talk. And a heart-to-heart talk is meant to further restart or heal a relationship. I think we see that right away in Isaiah. Come, let us reason, let us dispute, let us talk together. And so this is what we are aiming for when we're reading the poetry in Isaiah. Now, one place where this poetry sticks out is going to show up in Isaiah chapter 5. So, this is the chapter in which Isaiah launches into a song. Let me sing a song of my beloved, the vineyard. And the vineyard is meant to be Israel, right? And he talks about how the vine, the vine dresser um, does everything he can to make this vineyard fruitful. But instead of yielding grapes, it yields 
wild grapes. And so here's Israel, birthed by God himself. He rescues them from Egypt. He gives them a beautiful land. He gives them his presence and his law. And he gives them prophets and he gives them kings. What more could he have done for them? Yet instead of bearing the fruit God desired, they bore wild grapes. Things that could not be used in the way a vineyard was meant to be used. You see, they became useless. The frustration of pouring all of your love, affection, and work into making something according to your vision, and then it rebels against that, it doesn't work out the way you wanted it to, that's rough. You can imagine, this is very much like casting Israel in the Garden of Eden story. I made this beautiful, and it should have flourished. It was perfect. But... Notice the, 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 the fruit imagery and the garden imagery. It's a vineyard. But they went astray. Adam and Eve, Israel, Jerusalem, and Judah, they went astray. And so that's what chapter five is about. Um, it comes the moment, the, po- the, the important thing in the Hebrew poetry comes in chapter five, verse seven. And this is where Isaiah is drawing his conclusion before he launches into his six point sermon on woe to you. So he says in Isaiah five, seven, for the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. So when it says he looked for grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, we're now seeing that defined. The grapes, the fruit he's looking for is this. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, the wild grape. He looked for righteousness, the fruit, but behold, an outcry, the wild grape, the tart grape, the unusable grape, an outcry. Okay, so here we have it. I wanted justice, but I got bloodshed. I wanted righteousness, but I got an outcry. In the Hebrew, justice is mispat, and bloodshed, the next line, is mispah. That's the same lettering, except the last letter changes. So, I looked for mispat, but behold, mispah. I looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, sadaka. But behold, an outcry, say yaka. There, again, a single letter makes the difference. So let's, let's listen to this in Hebrew. He looked for mispat, but behold, mispach. For sedaka, but behold, say yaka. You hear that? You hear the beauty of that in the Hebrew and how it just, it's meant to draw the reader or the hearer's attention to those lines. Like, this is the serious charge brought against Israel. Instead of bearing fruit, they bore bloodshed and an outcry. So, here's what these words mean. Mispot, justice. It's translated that way in virtually all the meaningful translations. But here's the hard thing, is that justice uh, can be somewhat confusing for us, because... 
we we hear things like social justice and you know cameras pan on hungry people and then they got the the heroes who come and build wells in Africa or they're fighting against um human trafficking or or fair wages for people around the world in sweat factories like and I'm not at all making fun of that or mocking that that is incredibly important work and I think God smiles upon that work but this is not what Isaiah means by justice it's related but it's not exactly what he means. The, the broader meaning here in the Hebrew is governmental exercise of authority. Justice is the governmental exercise of authority. So when the government is getting it right, that's justice. But when the government is using its position and its power for itself, that is not justice. So God was looking for justice. He was looking for mispat. So in other words, he's looking to the rulers, the princes, the priests, and the king of Jerusalem to use their governmental authority to help the nation be fruitful. But instead, they're stripping the vineyard of its fruit and gorging themselves with it. Isaiah will elaborate on that in his six woes. So, he looks for mispah, justice, but behold, mispah, bloodshed. Now, mispah literally means flowing. And the idea is that it's the blood of humans that's flowing. So, it gets translated as bloodshed, oppression, or murdering each other. So the oppression or the rulers not using their authority to help the people, so they're using it to oppress them instead, their actions are making blood flow instead. And it's actually also a dramatic picture, poetically speaking, of a vineyard. Well, they're ripping off the grapes and they're squashing them, right? It's flowing, but it's not wine, it's blood. So the second thing he looks for, he's looking for righteousness. Now, righteousness, uh, this is the one, sadaka. It's translated in basically all important translations as righteousness. But again, more clarification, because this one, we often think of personal holiness or individual uprightness. Um, but he's not talking about that. He's talking more of a corporate righteousness, right? The nation itself it says, uh, one of the commentators said that it's defined as doing the right thing to others and God. So righteousness isn't like my own inner holiness or purity. It's the actions toward others and toward God. Um, they said that it can also mean faithfulness. So I am acting in a way that is faithful to my profession of faith in God, and it's faithful to my relationships to others. I'm not betraying others. I'm not hanging them out to dry. That's what he's looking for. Genuine, real, love your neighbor kind of relationships. But instead of that sadaka, behold, sayaka, an outcry. And so that... um is just all over the place, translation-wise. The ESV, outcry. New King James, cry for help. New Living, cries of violence. The Common English Bible, cry of distress. The message, moans of victims. But what's interesting 
is that this is the same word used in Exodus chapter 3 in verses 7 and 9 when God tells Moses at the burning bush that he has heard Israel's cry in slavery. That's the same word. So God is looking for righteousness, faithfulness, doing the right thing to others and God. But instead, he's hearing the same outcry Israel produced in their bondage in Egypt. Oh my goodness, that has to give you chills. This is how far Israel has slipped from what God has designed them to be. And so do you see how the poetry really pulls us into this like punch in the gut? It isn't just, I did everything for Israel, yet they just failed to produce fruit. Ah, we'll move on. No, it's, I did everything for you. And then instead of just failing to produce fruit, you have become like the oppressors of your history. You have become Egypt itself. And man, to the readers and hearers, that is a punch in the gut of utter Not just, oh, we didn't do it, but we did the exact opposite of what God was looking for. I can't, I can't recall where it is, but it's somewhere in the first five chapters. At some point, God says, I'm going to seek relief from my enemies. And he wasn't talking about Israel's neighbors. I think you know who he's talking about. So that's, that's where we can see the poetry really pulling and um, some of the areas where it helps only on occasion to actually know the details of the poetry. But otherwise, read it and feel it. Let the words move you. This is not necessarily the time to wax eloquent or to tap into your inner intellectual self. It's it's the time to feel God's heart. And how does he feel about the world and about us? And where are we with him? Let the text be the invitation to talk things over with God. I think Isaiah is going to prove to be an incredibly relational book while at the same time having this epic, resounding, magnificent wave of rising crescendos and dropping silences like a symphony. Speaking of that symphony, remember how we are dividing this into three parts, and that's very universally seen. Um, chapters 1 through 39, we see him being a prophet and he's um, bringing judgment. Um, chapters 40 through 55, he's he's um, bringing comfort like a poet. And then chapters 56 to 66, he's bringing hope like a preacher. So we see the prophet, the poet, the preacher, three parts, just like a symphony. It's got three parts, three movements, and each has its own feel. But there's a common theme throughout, and that theme is the Holy One of Israel. And um, that... That phrase, the Holy One of Israel, you'll see happen 25 times in Isaiah, which in a book of 66 chapters may not feel like a ton, but 25 times, it's only used 30 times in the entire Old Testament. So 25 out of 30 instances of the Holy One of Israel happens in Isaiah. That's the theme of this song. Now we'll hear it expressed in three different movements. Yeah? Okay. Now... These three divisions, though, now this is um, more just for your knowledge, because you may hear this somewhere, especially if you go study the Bible more deeply in some other books or even classes. Um, 
These three divisions have caused some controversy because they seem to be addressing different time periods. In other words, chapters 1 through 39 seems to address the time that Isaiah actually lived in. But beginning in chapter 40 and on, it seems to be about a future generation. So they say movement 2, chapters 40 through 55, is actually a message to the exiles. Well, Isaiah's long gone. He's dead by the time the city is exiled into Babylon. When we see Ezekiel writing, Isaiah's not on the scene anymore. And um, the messages of hope in the last chapters, chapters 56 to 66, um, is believed to relate to the people who return back to the land after exile's over. So this has caused some to say, okay, the book of Isaiah is made up of three different authors or um, a collection of authors. That first Isaiah, the first movement, was written by Isaiah himself, and someone wrote down his audible sermons, and now it's on writing. Um, second Isaiah, maybe it was his disciples. You know, maybe Isaiah had a school, maybe he had followers, and maybe they took some of his messages and wrote them to the exiles a generation later. And maybe the same thing with the third movement. Um, someone else took some of Isaiah's themes and, and wrote them to the next generation as, as the people returned to the land. Now, um, the other view, of course, is that Isaiah wrote all of it, and that Isaiah has the ability, because he's a prophet and that God is speaking to him, has the ability to speak to the future exiles and to speak to the future returning people to the land, because God is giving him words for what the people will need in the future when these events take place. What it basically boils down to in this uh, discussion about which is the case, it boils down to whether or not you believe God can give a prophet words necessary for the future that the prophet has no idea about. So you have some people who are um, don't see God doing that so much, so they think, yeah, there's there's a team of writers here, that's how this came about. You have others who believe that God can fully show Isaiah the future and give him the words to a future people, and that all this came from Isaiah. Either way, as long as we say that this is God's word, we're on solid ground. And that's really what matters. That whatever we have in this book, it came from God. And what has been passed down to us, we call inspired. That's what matters. That the words here can draw us into relationship with God. Okay, so I want to now just take the rest of our time looking at Isaiah chapter 1. There were some cool things that just stuck out to me that I wrote down, but just ultimately just it would have made the message way too long to cover. So we'll do that now. Um, notice that, so in a lot of places in Isaiah, God's going to sound angry and upset, but you have to remember the intent of the poetry is to evoke feeling behind the message. This doesn't literally mean that God's flipping over tables and chairs and and throwing the water cooler at his people. Like, God doesn't throw temper tantrums, right? This, these are words meant to evoke a stubborn people into the sudden realization that we are not in a good way. And I, I, I say that because the way this opens, yes, he sounds very angry. Uh, even Isaiah says, please don't forgive them. <laughs> it sounds like this is just the last straw. But I want to connect 
what Isaiah opens up with to what Moses said in Deuteronomy so that we can see how Isaiah fits in the larger plan of God. Okay? So, in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2, we hear this. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. And then the judgment is mentioned. But Isaiah is calling heaven and earth to testify against Israel, which is what Moses said would happen. Okay? So we need to see what, you know, we need to see where in the story Isaiah is writing. So if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, I think this is cool. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we see Isaiah listing us at this part of Israel's story. So Deuteronomy 4, Moses says, 4 verse 25. When you father children, now remember he's talking to the Jews who are about to enter the promised land. They're on the, the bank of the Jordan River in Moab. They're about to go in. This is a generation after the ones that came out of slavery. So he's reiterating the covenant to them, right? The law, God's relationship with his people. He's, he's recasting that to this new generation before they go into their vineyard, right? The one that God's preparing for them. Okay. So that's what Moses is doing here. He says, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly, by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Hear that? Moses says, If you get off track in this land, I'm calling heaven and earth to witness against you. I'm calling them as witnesses that I have warned you, if you get off track, you will lose the land. And you could end there. But here's the bigger story. Moses continues, You will not live long in it, but will surely be destroyed. And... Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. That's the exile, right? We see that happen in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Verse 28, And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But, but... But from there, you will seek Yahweh your God, and you will find him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to Yahweh your God and obey his voice. For Yahweh your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. That's so good. And that is what Isaiah is quoting when he opens his book. So yes, be scared, cringe, and feel the pain of this separation from your God. But, but, 
heaven and earth will also witness. They'll also testify to the fact that God does not throw anything away. He is merciful and he will be there when the people are finally ready to turn around and to seek him with their whole heart. He will be there. And that is what movements two and three in Isaiah are all about. So movement one, chapters one through 39, yeah, there's going to be a lot of harsh words. There's going to be a lot of you fail. There's going to be a lot of you're going to get kicked out of this land. But movements two and three, all about the mercy of God. And so there will be comfort. There will be hope. There's going to be restoration. So that's really important to keep in mind. Let's look now at some of these opening verses in Isaiah. Talks a lot about their sin. So in verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. There is a sense in which most of sin is a result of ignorance. It's a result of not believing in who God says we are. His people don't know, they don't understand. They've lost their relationship with him. Understand? They don't have that relationship, so they don't know who they are. They've forgotten. They're ignorant, and so they're bumbling about in the world trying to figure out how they're supposed to do things, and that's when we start to imitate the people or the nations around us, and that's when Israel begins to sin. They forget whose they are. And this is what Jesus says on the cross. His Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Much of our sin is committed in this act of complete ignorance that there has to be another way, that there's got to be another way. It's, it's, it's the world lulling us to sleep, hypnotizing us to be in step, to march to the rhythm of the patterns of the people of the earth. So what we need is waking up. Not just cleaning up, not just cleaning our act up. We need waking up. Because then when we recognize where we are and who we belong to and our status with this God, his children put on this earth to bear his fruit, waking up to that reality will help us to clean up our reality. And then in verse 5, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. There's this terrible disease. There's this terrible injury, this wound, and it's just festering and it's, it's oozing and there's been no one to help take care of it. Sin, I'm not saying that's Sin, that some of our sins are merely diseases, but sin is like a disease. In that sin is something that takes root within us as a disease can take root within us. And then as a disease has symptoms, you know it's there because, ah, this is starting to hurt or this is running or this isn't working. Um, those symptoms alert you to the disease. Our sins, our acts of sins 
are the symptoms of our sin, our disease. Sin, plural, is a condition within us. Sins, I'm sorry, sin singular is an, is a condition within us. Sins, plural, are the symptoms of that condition or the manifestation that there's a problem. I'm saying this because we have a tendency to wave the finger, to emphasize and to exaggerate and to focus on the symptoms we see all around us. And it can be tempting to uh, make a big deal about that. But that's not always the best approach, as you see Jesus himself. You might remember him walking through Samaria. It's noon, the high heat of the day. He and the disciples are tired. He's thirsty. They stop at a well. The disciples go into town to get food. Jesus sees a Samaritan woman at the well. She's by herself. Why is she by herself? She shouldn't be by herself. Women did not go exposed, vulnerable, dangerously alone to a well. They went in groups. And they didn't go at the high heat of the day when you would sweat and it would be harder to carry all that water. You would go in the morning when it's cooler and so that you would have water for the rest of the day to clean, to drink, to do your cooking. The fact that this woman is at the well at noon by herself speaks volumes about what the rest of the women think about her. She's the outsider. She's the woman with a past, with a reputation that the others don't want to be associated with. And so this woman decides it's far easier to battle the heat, to suffer my need for water later in the day than it is to face their looks, to hear their whispers, to walk with the group, but be outside of it. She's decided that this loneliness is easier. Now, Jesus, in his love for humanity, he can pick up on this. He can sense this. And it makes me wonder how good we are at sensing the obvious signs around us. I think because we see symptoms of sin and we get turned off rather than saying, wait, no, there's a need here. Jesus can see the symptoms right now. He can see them before they even talk. So he starts to talk to her, right? This is John chapter four, by the way. He begins to talk to her and he begins to talk to her about living water. Living water is what he talks about because that's what she needs. She needs something within her that will help cure the disease or the condition, the problem of sin within her. He's not as interested in saying, go clean up your act. He wants to wake her up within. He wants to heal her, bind her up, do whatever it takes to heal this woman. So he's offering living water, something that will heal her. And so, um, they're good. They're in this conversation. And she says, sir, give me this water. And Jesus says, well, go call your husband and come here. And then she, you can see her blush. You're thinking, oh man, I thought I was making a connection here. And now my life's ruined again because they're going to find out I'm that kind of woman. So she has to admit, uh, I have no husband, obviously not hiding you know, the full story, just, no, I don't have one. But see, Jesus knows. He can put all these things together. He sees the situation. He realizes, 
yeah, I have a feeling that's not the case. And he says, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And she gets uncomfortable (laughs) and changes the subject to where should we worship God? But what I love about this scene is that Jesus sees the signs. He's not surprised or horrified by her confession that she has no husband. And he knows she's had many boyfriends. You know, she's been loose. She's been immoral. She's been sleeping around. But notice that he does not keep pressing that point. Nowhere does he rebuke her. Nowhere does he tell her that it's time to clean up that maybe you need to put a ring on the finger of the guy you're with now. There is no advice. He keeps on focusing on the indwelling of the presence of God within this woman. Even when she changes the subject, he goes right back to it. Instead of talking about living water, he just talks about the presence of God in a different metaphor, the temple. And he says, it doesn't matter where that temple is, because there's a day coming when you will worship me in spirit and truth. He keeps getting to her condition, not her symptoms. And so I find this helps me when I am working with people, talking to people, living among people who it can be easy to just write off as sinners, as worldlings. What I'm more interested in is if I see symptoms, to look past those and try to see the hurt, the pain, the God-shaped hole within their lives, that condition that is driving the symptoms that we want to focus on. See, God, Jesus, they focus on the inner condition. That's what needs fixing. I want to fill that. I want to wake you up. And then the rest will take care of itself. You take care of the disease, you take care of the symptoms, right? I mean, what we often want to do is instead, oh, you have a cold here, have a Kleenex, and we just want to wipe, you know, the the snotty noses of all the people around us rather than, well, let's just get rid of the cold. So that's how God deals with us. And I think it's important to see that he really weeps with our pain rather than wanting to beat us up for it. Israel's beat herself up. That's the image here. She's in a real bad way because she's given in to her condition. She's let it have its way with her. Rather than going towards God's remedies, she's getting sicker and sicker. God wants to heal us. And I think he wants to use us to heal others too. So, um, boy, I feel like I've gone on and on about that enough. But one of the things that we see people do, because we're aware of our symptoms of our condition, is we try to placate God. Right? We try to pray more, go to church more, feel more fervency. Like we try to work up a feeling. Like we, we're basically just trying to cover or ignore the fact that this inner condition is there. And so that's where God fumes about their sacrifices, their new moon festivals. You know, in the drama, he gets in their faces. I'm sick of this. It makes me sick. It's a burden to me, everything you're doing. And that's because God doesn't want to be placated or, or means he doesn't want us to have to try to make up for making him mad. That's not what he's into. Grace cannot work that way. 
We cannot work our way back into a right relationship. We simply have to show up and like the woman at the well, who, by the way, is cured. She then tells the rest of the city about Jesus. Like the woman at the well, he wants to talk. There's no way around a relationship with this God. We must simply press in. We cannot placate him, appease him, make sacrifices to get him on our side. That doesn't work with him. He wants you. Not to punish you, but to fix you, to make you whole. That's the invitation that Isaiah opens up with. So, my friends, please do not shy from talking with God, having a genuine relationship with him. He's after our good because he's merciful and he's good. So until next time, this is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thanks for listening.